Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale in-store and online at cabelas.com. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Wuru, your host, so happy to have you with us this week. We have two guests for you, Amin Hassan of ESPN, ESPN Insider, and Nate Duncan of Basketball Insiders to talk about the Nike Hoop Summit. First up is Amin Hassan. First off, we do about 40 minutes on the version of The Eliminated, which is the series that I'm doing on the podcast, talking in depth about specific teams and their off-season priorities and plans, and we go through that with the Phoenix Suns, the team that he actually used to work for and still follows very closely. Do that for about 40 minutes, then we get into general NBA topics from the off-seasons that he's looking into to the Celtics and Kevin Love and a lot of other stuff, and I think it was a really fun and interesting discussion. And I hope you enjoyed it. So it's 40 and 30, so it's a little over an hour, about an hour 10, and then Nate Duncan after that. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me. So we'll do a few different points of discussion, but I want to start with the Suns because that's a team that you know very well. And let's start out with the lay of the land in terms of free agency and in some ways most notably who the free agents this time. And we'll start with P.J. Tucker. What do you expect, and what would you do if you were the Suns GM? Well, in, in the last free agent rankings that I did, which was a little bit right after the trade deadline, I had P.J. Tucker at about a three-year deal, $9 million, so about $3 million a year. And then I, I put partial guarantees towards the end of that contract. You know, the thing that people need to remember is Tucker is of an advanced age. I mean, he's not 100 years old, but he's older than most players coming off their second or third season, which he's got three years of, of experience. And the other thing is, up until 
this season, he had absolutely no offensive game, so to speak. And this year, he added the corner three-pointer. But even then, he went through a long stretch from about January 1st to about the All-Star game where he was horrendous from corner three. So I, I don't even know if I can put him down as, oh, yeah, now he's definitely a three and D guy. I think those are some questions you have to ask about him. And that's why kind of I'm hesitant to offer anything more than what I put down in my ranking. Now, another team might not have followed the, the up-and-down nature of his three-point shooting, the specificity of where he's taking his threes, only corners. Uh, he gives you nothing above the arc. And, uh, you know, they're just looking at it as they go, he's shooting this, this percentage from three, and he's a pretty good defensive player, $5 million. I could see that happening. I think if you're the Suns, I don't know if you can go chasing that kind of money. At the end of the day, he is a very replaceable commodity. He's all my guys to defend and shoot three somewhat well. And we're not even talking about the elite three-point shooting wings who defend like the Ariza go to look. We're talking about a guy who's a somewhat okay three-point shooter. I think they can replace that without having to spend that much money. And it's not just principle of it that, oh, I can't spend $5 million on T.D. Tucker. It's They're in a very specific kind of scenario. They have hopes and dreams of netting a big superstar by a trade or free agency, and they've got their own star to worry about in in Eric Bledsoe. How much are they going to pay him to keep him on the team? So I don't know if you can be so haphazard. Yeah, we'll match anything if you're the Suns and it comes to P.J. Company. You've got a line in the sand and you've got to figure out we're not crossing that. And a lot of that goes into where you see him in a rotation. And so a lot of it, I, if you obviously if you see him as a starter, which I don't think either of us do, that pushes him up in pay. But otherwise, there's a pretty big difference in terms of importance and what you're willing to pay a guy between being the first wing off the bench and being the second wing, especially when you're a team that has a lot of other potential assets like the Suns do. Right. And to me, even if he's a starter, I mean, there's a lot of guys in this league, for instance, not as good a defender, better shooter. Danny Green, who would you rather have, Danny Green or, or P.J. Tucker? I'd have Danny Green and I'd not even a second doubt about it. All him. right. Danny Green makes roughly about three and, you know, three and a half, three, three quarters per year. So if we already decided, oh, Danny Green, definitely. Well, then he doesn't make that much more than $3 million. And, and, and Danny Green was just one guy I plus out. But, again, you can go down. There's a lot, a lot of guys for these small forwards, they, they guard and they shoot three. And to varying degrees of either of those traits. And the, the and number is in that ballpark. You know, Matt Barnes, for instance, is, an, is another guy. Matt Barnes, again, defensively, I would say they're comparable. I think Matt, Matt's a little bit more versatile. Offensively, Matt's a better player. Matt makes, again, $10 million over three years, so that's three and a third. Yeah, and mind you, they're a similar age as well. So again, if we're looking at the Matt Barnes of the world, the Danny Greens of the world, I don't see too much separation there between Tucker and and those guys. I'll give you another name, Demari Cowell. He's had a great year. Had a great year and shot. To the listeners, I'm cheating right now. I'm looking up what Demari Cowell shot from three this year. I know it was really good. He shot. 36% from three. For someone who up until that point had never attempted more than 73 points in a year, that's incredible. He shot 273s and shot 36% from the field. And he was a tremendous defender, 
and energy player, I would think on a similar type of brand as T.J. Tucker. Demar Carroll makes $2.5 million per year. So you look at all the comparables from last summer that signed and the last couple of summers, and again, we can debate the variance of, oh, but he's a better shooter. Oh, but he's a better defender. Oh, but he's better at both. But of all those names, we're still talking about the same kind of salary range. So again, the question becomes if you're the son, regardless of whether he's starting or coming off the bench, how much are you going to pay for something that, A, other people aren't paying that much for, and, B, there seems to be more than a couple of guys out there that fit this role. Yeah, that's an, that's an excellent point. And, yeah, there's a lot to that. And a guy who is harder to replace and thus will command more money is Eric Bledsoe. How do you see that shaking out? Now, that one is different. This one is, is much more of a chess game, whereas C.J. Tucker is one where you can sit back and say, look, this is the number we're comfortable paying. If the negotiation goes north of that, we shake his hand and say, thank you for your service. Best of luck to you. But Eric Bledsoe, not so simple, because you have to try and figure out how important is he to our success in the future. Our current success, how important was he to that? Let me ask you a question, Danny. Who's the better player on the team? Who was the better player this year, injuries excluded? Goran Dragic or Eric Bledsoe? To me, it was Dragic. I think he was a phenomenal player. But at the same point, I think that Bledsoe's defensive versatility helped Dragic. But I would say Dragic was the better, more important player. Right. And, and, and I, would, I, would, I would agree with you there. I think when I look at Bledsoe and Dragic, you obviously think one guy is 23, the other guy is 28. So Dragic, he is in the prime of his career right now. Whereas Bledsoe, you look at him and say, well, he can be so much more. Will he be so much more? We don't know. But he's shown enough flashes this year where you think, okay, he, he, can, he can get better and better. Here's the problem. You know right now Dragic is the better player. Dragic has an opt-out next year. If you pay Bledsoe too much now, you better be damn sure you're going to be paying, you're going to be paying Dragic a lot next year and by next year, I mean summer 2015, or you're saying, I'm going to build my team to a point where if Dragic leaves in 2015, not a big issue for me. This is the kind of, I know it sounds wishy-washy, it sounds very nonsense, but this is what building a team is about. It's about answering questions that nobody really has answers to. If we pay Bledsoe this much, what does this mean for our ability to get another star? What does this mean for our ability to keep that star and Dragic and Bledsoe all together, what does it mean for us to build a team that maybe Dragic isn't a part of in the future? Or maybe we've decided what that number is and Bledsoe comes in with an offer sheet that goes north of that number. And if that's the case, what does it mean for us to build a team with Dragic and a star and not Bledsoe? And these are all the different questions that the Suns front office, they have to, to weigh and gauge. For me, I have Bledsoe at about $50 million nothing over four years, that's including incentives that will get him up to there, up to $50 million. So I think I had him at 47, 48 mil, and then incentives that will get him up to 50, such as making an all-star team or all-NBA or something like that. More than that, I think I would hesitate for two reasons. One, the last two years we've seen the, the this is the golden generation of point guards in our league, and we've seen all those guys sign around the $12 million or less mark. So we talk about Lawson, Drew Holiday, Steph Curry. These guys were all in that, uh, that range. Mike Conley is in there. And then Mike Conley's a little less, but then, you know, going down, you've got 
Goran Dragic, you've got Jeff Teague, you've got Jeremy Lin. Again, I'm not comparing these guys as talent. I'm comparing them by salary. And if there's any talent comparison, we're saying, well, Bledsoe is as good as any of these guys. Is he better? Is he in that Westbrook range? I don't think so. Is he in the Derrick Rose, healthy Derrick Rose range? I don't think so. And is he in the Chris Paul range? I definitely don't think so. So to talk about a number north of what all of these other, the, the market basically has dictated, that this is what the really good but not supreme point guards are making, I don't know. I, I feel comfortable going up to, you know, above 12-ish. You know, they have the new cap projection that came out very recently, and I'm not an expert. But I'm ballparking it. I believe the first-year max salary for next year will for you know, guys of the Bledsoe draft class of that age, six years of experience or less, is going to be roughly fourteen and a half to fourteen point seven million dollars. Don't quote me. That's just my rudimentary math on top of my head. It starts at fourteen and a half million. That means you're looking at with, of course, you would have the seven and a half percent raise because he's he's your guy. He's a bird rights guy. So, again, I'm going to cheat to all the listeners. I'm pulling up my spreadsheet so I can plug in these fun numbers. And based on $14.5 million and a 7.5 raise, you're looking at a four-year deal maximum for him. Is the offer, oh, excuse me. The offer sheet would be 4.4.5%. I, I apologize. Another team could offer him starting salary about $14.5 million a year. And with a four and a half percent raises, would give him a four-year deal of about sixty-two million. That's about fifteen five per year when you average annual value of that contract. Fifteen point five million dollars. So you're saying that Bledsoe is not only better than Steph Curry, he's almost a full four million dollars better than Steph Curry. Does that sound reasonable to you, Danny? It doesn't, and the other part of it is something that I refer to as the Nene test, which is if you sign a guy to the contract, let's say it's matching, will that be considered an asset moving forward? Because the mm. other option in terms of the chess game is what Masai did with, with Nene, which is the idea of can we sign this guy without necessarily having the intention of retaining him? And the danger with a guy like Bledsoe is – if that number is too high, and as you talked about, there there are a plethora of point guards out there now, and while Bledsoe has the benefit of coming out when the stock is a little bit drier, this free mm-hmm. agent market is going to be a little bit weaker. It's pretty much just Isaiah, and then the draft class is shaky at best. I mean, it, depending on how you see Exum and Marcus Smart, mm-hmm. it's not strong. So you could see a team make a stupid offer. But so the question, the other question the Suns have to ask is, not only is this a reasonable price for us, but is this a reasonable price for other teams? Because if you can see it that way, then you can say, okay, Dragic is going to be an unrestricted free agent. Then you can do a number for him at the same time and kind of keep all of the pieces in play. But that's a very dangerous game too. Right. I love that. By the way. I'm going to steal that term, Danny, the Nene test. Because there are, you're right. There are so many guys that you could say this deal works for us and for what we're looking for. And, but then, you know, it's kind of like buying a car. The moment you sign that that deal, the value has dropped dramatically. It's, it's, you'll never get the same value for. So I think of a guy like Pekovich last summer, based on what every other center had signed over the last few years, based on what every starting center was averaging, what he signed for was very reasonable. 
try and trade Pekovich now. I, I don't think he can get good return for that. Josh Smith, same thing. When you look at his resume, the things that he does, and the guys that do what he does around the league and what they got in deals, I thought Detroit got a very reasonable market value deal. They didn't overpay. They didn't, they didn't get a steal. Uh, now, Detroit was a different case because he was just a horrible fit for the roster. But the, the point stands is that he signed the deal. If you wanted to turn around and trade him now, there's no way you would get value for him. But Nene is kind of like, that's, that's a good point, the Nene test. But, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So signing Bledsoe, is, is it something that you can keep the team together for and then move down the line, or is it something that maybe down the line you make a different decision? The other thing also to remember is the Eric Gordon thing. So I know Bledsoe came back and he played well and he looked healthy, but you got to have at least some question about that knee at this point. And Eric Gordon, of course, had a knee injury, got a max offer sheet from the Sun, Hornets slash Pelicans match, and now he's kind of stuck with this guy who doesn't look like he used to. That risk has to play in to the Eric Bledsoe negotiation for the Sun. You have to. There has to be some sort of way that they can account for that, whether that's, okay, we would have given you 12 and a half, but we're knocking you off uh, a million, so you're down to 11 and a half, or whether it's language in there that, hey, if you have a knee injury that causes you to miss this much, we can void or, or whatever kind of language you want to put in to protect the team. Yeah, and we saw that play out in terms of the extension conversation with Stephen Curry, is that Stephen mm -hmm. got it. He discounted himself because the Warriors weren't willing to give him his ceiling because they knew that there was these downside risks and that he'd had his share of injuries. And so he got more security, cause, but that was different because he signed his contract a year before he hit free agency, so he mitigated a lot of risk. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, one side question, but I think you have good insight in this, and I'm not trying to torture Milwaukee fans because I like the city mm -hmm. of Milwaukee, but a clarification thing that I've been wondering since the trade happened itself is that the way that the three-way trade with Reddick and Jared Dudley was structured, Bledsoe went to the Suns as opposed to going to the Bucks, and mm -hmm. they brought along Karan Butler's contract with them, which then ended up coincidentally going to the Bucks months right. later. Obviously, you might not know for sure, but is your intuition the same as mine that presumably the Bucks could have gotten the same offer and gotten Bledsoe if they had taken Karan Butler? I think part of that is no, because Clippers obviously got two assets in Dudley and Reddick in exchange for giving up Butler's contract and Bledsoe. So, I mean, so technically at the time, if you're the Clippers, you say, hold up, okay, what are we doing? We're giving up Bledsoe. What are we getting in return? Well, someone's going to take Butler's contract. We're going to get J.J. Redick, who fits us perfectly. And at the time, we're going to get Jared Dudley, who also fits us perfectly. Obviously, he's falling out of the rotation now, but he's got a reasonable deal, four and a quarter. That's nothing to, to you know, to worry. It's, it's not like a it's not like Butler's deal, for example. So if you're the Clippers at the time, that's an incredible haul. If you're talking one-to-one -one with the Bucks, two things going on. One is, obviously, all right, now we're we're missing one of those assets. We're not getting Dudley. We're only getting ready and getting rid of Butler's contract. The other part of it is if you and I don't know, I don't know. I'm just speculating. But if you're the Bucks and you are trading for Eric Bledsoe, there's a big chance you're trading for someone who will walk away at the end of the deal, right? And and usually the agents handle that part of the conversation. Like, look, you can trade for my guy. We're not staying at the end of the year. 
maybe that was part of it. I really, I really don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure why that didn't end up being a one-to-one deal. Uh, as I understand it, the Bucks didn't initiate that conversation. It was between the Clippers and the Suns who initiated the the, the conversation. So, I, I, but I don't know. I'm, these are all just wild guesses. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting, but without any direct knowledge on either side, we can move on. And so for me, the big question for the Suns is whether they can combine their numerous assets, and I'm sure we'll go through some of those, into a high-end player or two at the top of their rotation as opposed to adding a bunch of guys kind of in the middle and bottom of their rotation. Yes. <laughs> let me do this way. They are where Houston was on October 1st, 2012, or October 25th, 2000, whatever, a couple of days before they got James Harden. You got a lot of guys, and they're all kind of good, and you got all these picks, and you got these young players that might turn out to be some good, and you're just waiting. Who's going to mess up? Who's going to have – Dwight Howard, is he available? No, he's not available. Okay, ready? Well, Harden, Harden, is he available? Oh, he's available? Here, we bid this much. And at the time, the Thunder looked at it and said, look, we know we can't keep Harden. Let's look at who's offering what around the league. And you look at the offers that are on the table then, obviously when you're talking to teams that are interested, you know, you, you know they've got other stuff. They say, what about your first rounder that you have coming from Charlotte or from Detroit or whatever? And that team probably said no. And if you're in Thunder, you, you say, well, maybe if we wait until February, they'll get anxious and then give it up. But then you look at the Houston deal and say, Bird in the hand versus two in the bush. This is a really good deal. We get a, a lottery pick. We get a guy in Lamb who is looks like he's an up-and-coming player. We get a guy in Kevin Martin who can play right now and won't, won't have to take a step back as a franchise in dealing with this guy who's been a big part of our success. And so Houston put themselves in a situation where they could put together that kind of package and reap the benefit. And obviously that's changed the complexion of their franchise. Before that, they were just listless for two or three years there, just asset accumulation and, and nothing to show for it. Phoenix is now in that spot, right? They have guys that are kind of, you know, kind of attractive. The Morris brothers, Daryl Green, Channing Fry. You know, if you want to get crazy, you could throw Goran Dragic in that as well as someone, Miles Plumley. They're all good players. They're all players that, in obviously mining situations, but usually, based on the way they play this year, you could see many teams. Well, I could use a guy like that. The question is, will that combination of players and picks, which we all know are probably going to be 14 and lower, unless something really crazy happens on uh, draft lottery day, is that enough to entice any of these teams that have superstars that need to be dealt? So, without beating around too much, is that enough to entice Minnesota? Is Minnesota going to say, we'd rather start over with this collection of assets than risk losing Kevin Love or getting less on the dollar if we keep waiting? That's the question. And unfortunately for the Suns, like the Rockets, they're not in a position to push the issue, right? They are, they are in a reactive state. They have to wait for someone to say, Fine, we're going to trade Kevin Love, or fine, we're going to trade Al Horford, or whatever, whatever player, player you're thinking of. they got to wait for that, those guys to come to that conclusion. They can't compel anybody to do anything. And for fans, that's hard to listen to. Hey, guys, you've got to sit back and wait. No one wants to hear that. They want to hear, oh, man, we burn up the phones and we offer this and that. But at the end of the day, Minnesota doesn't want to trade them. If Cliff Saunders is convinced that, hey, 
I'm going to be the next coach of the team. When I coach, Kevin Love will love it here. Well, I'm sorry. It doesn't matter what you offer. They're not going to, they're not going to deal them because they have the bird in hand, the superstar player that you know you can play right now versus, yeah, the number 14 pick in the draft might get you someone good. Or it might get me Cole Aldridge. So that, that's the sucky part, I guess, of, of being in the sun position. You've got great assets. But you just have to wait. The other part that might backfire is if you're Flip Saunders again and you're rumored to be probably the guy who will take over as head coach, if you trade him, Kevin Love, am I going to trade him to start over from scratch? Or am I going to pick up the phone from Golden State, for example? David Lee and Harrison Barnes. One guy's an all-star, one guy was a top-10 pick. And I know Harrison Barnes fell on hard times this year, but there's still a lot of people who have hope for him as an offensive wing, as a guy who can score for you. So if you're flips on and say, oh, hold on, I got to coach this mess. I don't want to be coaching with Gerald Green acting crazy with the Morris brothers, you know, getting in fights with teammates and ganging up on people. And, you know, I want to win. Give me the all-star. Give me the kid who has some upside. Maybe that deal sounds better. And so that, that's the other thing that the Suns will be fighting in, in the Kevin Love scenario specifically, is that the other offers may have more ready-made talent to give up. But the main thing is you can't compel anybody to trade someone if they don't feel like trading them at that point. Yeah, there, there are two good points that you brought up and that I, I wanted to go on a little bit, which is I like the idea of veto players. I have a political background. And so the idea is that there are, t- there are two other groups other than whoever's offering that can scuttle a Kevin Love deal. One of them is the Timberwolves if they're not getting what they want. And the other is Kevin Love because the difference between him and Harden is that he's an unrestricted free agent. And they're, under the current CBA, there is zero chance that he will be extended before that. So you're not getting leverage in that sense. So the challenge with that, as you said, is that it needs to be a desirable situation, and they need to get reasonable assurances that he'll stay. And you also have the challenge that Houston benefited from numerous teams, by most rec- reports, declining similar offers for James Harden, rumors that the Warriors, uh, that, that the, the Thunder approached them with Clay and some sort of pick, the Wizards with Bradley, Be- the pick that became Bradley Beal and, and maybe some other asset, and they turned it down. So Houston gained some sort of leverage, but it's a really hard situation. It was tough for Harden, and they got a lot of benefits, and it's very unlikely that any team, especially the Suns, will get those same benefits this time around. Yeah, but here's the thing. So when you mentioned some of these other other deals that were on the table, I mean, Beal, the Beal one for Washington, Beal was already drafted at the time, right? Uh, because he was 2012 draft, and then Harden was, was traded October 2012. Well, um, the rumor is that they offered it before the draft and after the draft. So Okay. Um, but either, either way, either way, there's still that's still that the problem was if you look at Oklahoma City, their thing was, like, we're on the cusp of winning a championship. So you can't trade Harden for Bradley Beal. You see the, the thought process and say, okay, I can get Bradley Beal, it might be really good. Or I can get Kevin Martin and Jeremy Lamb. And Lamb may not be as good as Beal, but he, can, he still has some upside. And I know Kevin Martin is an 18 to 20 point scorer in this league right now. I know he's a 40% shooter. I know he gets to the free throw line six to eight times. I mean, that kind of definite you can bank on right now for a championship caliber team. That's important. Uh, you know, again, fans sometimes, oh, no, no, 
are you crazy, Bradley? Bill's way better than all of that. And you're right, but how long are you willing to wait? Slash, how sure are you? Because we know, like, we want to pretend like we know these guys are no brainers. Other than like LeBron James, and LeBron James, pretty much. Most of these guys, there's like a significant amount of doubt. There's a what if it doesn't happen? What if he can't create his own shot? What if he's too small? What if he can't guard? There's all these what ifs that creep in and create that doubt. And again, if I'm a 40-win team, I can live with that. I'm like, hell, what am, what am I in a hurry for? But if you're the Oklahoma City Thunder, 57, 58, 60 win, champion, went to the finals, you can't play with that. You can't say, yeah, we, we traded the sixth man of the year who's going to get a max deal for Erky. Hope he works out, right? You, just, you can't play with the house money like that. Uh, the Clay Thompson one, all right, that one's a little bit more uh, in the ballpark, but still, there's still an element of, you know, Clay Thompson's ceiling versus the ceiling of Jeremy Lamb plus the right now of Kevin Martin. So I, that, that's the distinction right there. I think you're still dealing with a team that was trying to win a championship. Now, on the other hand, you're right. You're absolutely right. The fact that Harden was going to be a restricted free agent, the fact that him getting traded before the deadline allowed Houston to give him a contract that he would not be able to get anywhere else because they were going to give him the five-year extension, uh, which can only happen in that window right there, and pay him, pay him more because of it. So that part, yes, factors in. But I think when you're talking about Kevin Love and the team trading for him, part of the reason why you're doing this is because you believe you have a franchise that he's not going to want to leave, right? So if you're the Suns, so let me give let me let me put it in a, in a blunter way. If you're the Sixers, it's a bad deal. Why is it a bad deal? Because no matter how miraculous the turnaround is going to be, they're probably still going to be a pretty bad team next year. And then he's a free agent. And if he's a free agent at the end of the year, and you really still kind of in the rebuilding phase, this is a guy who's been in the rebuilding phase his entire career. So he's not going to stick around any longer. He's like, come on. You know, this isn't turned around. Now. Whereas if you're the Suns, you could say, we won 47 games without you. It's a Charles Barkley to the Suns argument from two decades ago. Is that That's what the Suns, that was a pitch they made to Charles. Like, hey, Charles, we went to the conference finals without you. We're a, we're a damn good team right now. But with you, we're a great team. And Kevin Love ain't no Charles Barkley. And the 2014 Suns ain't the 1991-92 Suns. But Similar kind of analogy. We want to, we, we're knocking on death. If Russell doesn't get hurt, we're winning 50 games and going to play out. You've never won 50 games in your career. We don't need you, but you take us from a good team to a great team. And then obviously you have to spend that year convincing him that's the case. So the, the, the facilities have to be great. So the staff has to be great. So the kid has to like the town and like how he's treated, and like how he's used in offense. And all these are question marks and variables. But, but in, you know, we talk about the treadmill of mediocrity. This is how you get off the treadmill. You go get you a, a great one. And if you're afraid, oh, but he might leave at the end of the year. So basically you're saying the only team that can trade for him and feel confident about him saying are Chicago, Miami, New York, and L.A. And I, I don't believe that's the case. I think players want to be somewhere where they can win, where they're going to get paid, and where they are happy playing, happy in the way they are used. And whether and even the Milwaukee's and the Detroit's of the world can attract talent if those questions are answered. Well, yeah, and we've seen that with the Spurs. And the other thing that's interesting about a team like the Suns or the Warriors trading for him is everybody talks about the looming role of L.A. And, you know, he went to UCLA and we went to the same school and all that. But 
he's going to have to, if he's on a better team than Minnesota, he's going to be looking at the tire fire that is likely to be the 2014-2015 Lakers and going, do I really want to be a part of that? Mm. And that's a really interesting argument that I think has helped a lot if he's somewhere other than Minnesota, you know, if he's with the Warriors, if he's with the Suns, if he's with the Bulls, then you're then you're looking at that and you're saying, okay, I'm winning and they're probably a disaster versus, eh, you know, I think I'll mm. make them better. And that's it's a very different situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're, you're, you're 100% right. If I'm stuck in hell, L.A. don't look so bad. Weather's nice. They got cap space. You know, I went to school there great women or you know, whatever you want to call it, all the perks of being in Hollywood shine. If you're somewhere winning, they don't look like perks anymore. It looks like, okay, I got to deal with Kobe and they don't have any other help and they're kind of painting themselves in the corner in the cap. And, oh, by the way, I'm probably going to get hit up for tickets every single day of my life, you know, and and, and sponsor requests. I'm going to have to do all types of meet and greets and, and you know, that stuff can be fun up to an extent, but when it becomes your everyday life, it gets distracting, and, and a lot of players don't like having to be consumed with that. They just want to play ball. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. She's in a good situation. L.A. doesn't look as attractive. So, assuming they keep most or all of their assets, it looks like the Suns are going to have their own first, which is going to be 14. They will not get Minnesota's, but they will have Washington's, which is another mid-first, and then Indiana's, which is a late one. What players do you strongly want or not want on the Suns in terms of those general positions in the draft? That's tough. And, and the reason why it's tough, and full disclosure, I've, I've never been a mock draft guy. So I don't, you know, to, to project who's going to be around at that level, I'll be honest, right now I'm not, I'm not 100%, but this is what I am going to do because it just came out today. I will encourage everyone to go check out Chad Ford's mock draft 4.0. We're pulling up on my computer right now as you're listening. I hope you're doing the same and looking at around that area. So let's look from generally from 12 down. So 12 down, he's got, well, let's go with 11. He's got Tyler Ennis, Dario Saric, Nick Stauskas, Zach Levine, James Young, PJ Hairston, Clint Capella, Cleanthony Early, Adrian Payne, Jeremy Grant. That's 11 through 20. That's a 10 in the middle chunk of the draft right there, 11 through 20. Saric, to me, is very interesting as a drafter stash guy. We don't know whether he's going to come over immediately or not. He, he, there's a lot of things going on there. Ennis, I'm not as sold on. I mean, I think he's going to be a good player, but he's not special. Stauskas, I think he's going to be a good player, like in the J.J. Reddick mold, but again, not overly special. Zach Levine has an, a chance to be really interesting. James Young has a chance, but he's really raw. P.J. Harrison is an interesting one with maybe one of those lower picks. Clint Capella, also not ready, but maybe down the line another draft attack guy. Adrian Payne, very interesting, especially as we see what happens with the Morris Twins and Channing Fry, you know, in that power forward position moving forward. Channing Fry can opt out of his deal this summer as well. A lot of people haven't spoken about that. So out of those names right there, I, I think I like Capella and Saric as draft and stash candidates. As far as guys right now, Levine, Kirsten, and Adrian Payne, and then some of these other guys, you know, James Young would be the, I, you know, roll the dice, hope he really turns out to be something special. And then you go that further down the list. Uh, Rodney Hood is at 25. I like Rodney Hood. He's a guy that I think could fit this style. 
nice length and athleticism, good shooter. Lower than that, Kyle Anderson, I don't think that's a good fit for their style of play. T.J. Warren, I'm not really sold on. So I, I'm giving, like, the worst answer to this question. I apologize. But I think I think we can sum it up with in that middle of the first-round range, if you told me that they get Clint Capella or Saric or Zach Levine or T.J. Harrison, I think all of those are solid picks for different reasons. And then towards the bottom of the draft, if you're telling me, someone like Rodney Hood or even uh, Alfred Payton, those guys kind of might sit in as uh, bottom of the first round type talent. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I would be very intrigued. One of the guys that I've been high on for a while is Mario Hazonia. I think if you can get him in the late first, that would be very interesting. He's another – there are a lot of just weird flyer guys in this draft, especially outside of the top ten. There are a lot of unsure guys. And I would be intrigued by him uh, in a go-go system. I think that would be good for him. It would be fun. But, yeah, I, I think that's that's interesting with the draft. And also, this whole thing ties in pretty well with the last question I'll ask on the Suns, which is something that I've called for years the timetable of contention. And basically the idea of that is every team has a peak. Mm-hmm. And what I'm intrigued by is what you see as that peak And then when you think that will be, because every team has a rise and fall with young guys and older guys. And when do you think this Suns team will be the best in the next, let's say the next decade, but like, when do you think is going to be their peak in that stretch, regardless of how high it is? No, that that question is, is, you know, it's kind of like the meat of what this podcast has been about is can they get that guy? So if they can get that guy, kind of love whoever it is, I think they can be in the conversation for competing for a championship. And I always use the conference finals as, as that kind of problem. Right? As a team that can make the conference finals, and if things fall in the right way, maybe take a final trip, maybe win a championship. Dallas was like that a couple of years ago, 2011, when they won. We were like that in 2010, I felt like, in Chiefs, uh, when I was with the Suns. We weren't the best team in the West, we were the best team in the league, but we knew we could beat matchups, and we knew if we did things the right way, got a little luxury in there, we might play our way to the finals. We came from a long our test, a rebound, offensive rebound, keep doing that. So I think if they can add someone like that, like Kevin Love, and I hate to keep using his name, but that's the one that everyone's in love with, they can be that caliber team. If they don't, if you're telling me it's just going to be all internal kind of building up and they can keep Bledsoe and Dragic together, then I think probably – the way the West is looking like six seed, fifth seed, 50 wins here or there, 48 to 60 wins, fighting, maybe get a first round home court advantage, maybe win your first round, but second round knockout, kind of like that. I don't want to call it the treadmill mediocrity because really that's, that's really good. It's hard to do that, to be even that good in our league consistently, but that's where it would be. Yeah, and it, it, to me, the the ceiling for this team without that next guy is in a way similar to what Memphis is right now, which is that they're a, a team that nobody wants to face that's very good, but that it would take a lot of dominoes for to fall right for them to win a championship. I don't know. I want to stop you. I think Memphis is a credible – I think Memphis is in that conference final threshold where it, it doesn't take necessarily that many dominoes because I think Marcus Hall is that guy when we're talking about having that guy. I think Marcus Hall is that guy for them. He is special. He is an elite caliber player in our league at, at a position where, again, you can make a, lot, a huge impact on both sides of the ball. So I wouldn't put Memphis. I mean, if Memphis didn't have their injuries, they'd be fighting for, for you know, they'd be 
fighting for three, four with the Clippers and and the Rockets and, and that and that threshold. That's I fair. Mean, I can see. I, Dallas, I see them a little bit lower. Oh, okay. Dallas is Dallas is more. I think what I was thinking about, like Dallas, like Golden State, you know, right now with the way they underachieve, like those kind of teams. Portland, I would put there as well. They're a good team. They've got talent, but over the top talent, you know, to to hit conference finals or bust, not so much. And then, do you think? Let's talk more. If they don't get that guy. Do you think that the core of this team is going to be substantially better three years from now than, or is the downside risk of potentially Dragic or Bledsoe leaving make that ceiling maybe a little bit closer if they don't get a max quality guy? That's a tough question. I think that's a tough question. I don't know. I think the uncertainty with everything that's going on with them, because I can answer that question and then Bledsoe might leave in the summer and then my answer is invalid. Or I can answer that question and then Dragic gets traded because they know they can't keep them because of what they paid Bledsoe, and my answer doesn't matter. So I think the ceiling for the team, assuming that they are all healthy and together, is a lot closer than I think they want to admit to themselves even, probably. Because there's a, there's an inclination always to believe when the team does well, next year will be better. And I'm not, yeah, not sure that even if they kept the team together, they'd be better next year. That's an inter- it's an interesting point. And also, that's the, the strange peril of having a team that's really well coached, is if they're closer to their physical ceiling, we talk about a guy like P.J. Tucker, you mm-hmm. know, if P.J. Tucker is about as good as he's going to be, then if there isn't as much juice left to squeeze out of the fruit, mm-hmm. then you have to see talent acquisition and trading talent in a very different way. And that also, if you're, to me, if you're that kind of GM, that also makes you more likely to trade the guys you have because they might be overvalued by other teams, and then you would get more to squeeze out of other guys. Absolutely. This, uh, the number one rule in this business is never fall in love with your own bull excrement. And so when you have guys, you know your guys better than – or you should know your guys better than anyone else does. When you have your guys performing at a certain level that you know is above – what they can consistently provide for you, particularly if you're going to have to start making decisions on how much to pay them. You need to sell high. Unless, again, you're knocking on a championship door. If we're number one seed in the West and, you know, we went to the you know, then it's different. Then it's like, okay, I don't know if you can break it up at that point. But if you're a team like the Suns and looking at the way Gerald Green played, you have to know, it. okay, this week, he's getting a lot of attention. He's not this good. He has gaping flaws that we chose to ignore because at our level, what he brings to the table makes up for those flaws. As we get better as a team, as we progress and grow and have bigger ambitions than making the playoffs and proving the quote-unquote haters wrong, he becomes more of a drag than a lift. And that drag, because it's apparent at higher levels of competition, you got to be able to sell before you get to that level, before people figure it out. Because people had Gerald Green figured out. There's a reason why he didn't play in Indiana. Part of it is maybe Indiana was, was too stubborn with their principles. But part of it is because he can't guard. He doesn't pay attention to any kind of defensive schemes. Offensively, he just wants to freestyle and do what he wants. He has no attention to detail. None of these things changed from there to here. All that happened is he got with a coach who said, I don't care. I don't mind that those bad parts about you because I think the good that will get out of you outweighs that. And, they, and he did. But Hornets could afford to not care that they were a 25-win team last year 
and it was a complete reboot of the franchise. And making the playoffs, again, they didn't make the playoffs, and they're already celebrating and patting themselves on the back. So, obviously, those kind of flaws aren't that big of a deal when you're in that position. As they move forward, like you said, as the fruit gets squeezed harder and harder, and there's no more juice coming out, then it starts, now you can start to figure out, wait a second, why did we lose that game? Oh, because he decided to just leave Monage Millie wide open in the corner. Because he, why did, why did we lose that game? Because, oh, because Mike Miller was open for 17,000 threes, even though he's one of the best shooters in the league. Those problems, that last example, it's true, wasn't just a made up one, that becomes a lot more apparent. You know, his problems become a lot more apparent when you're in that situation. We need this one. He's good enough to get you beat. Now, the difference is 90% of the league probably doesn't know that anymore. They think, oh, no, no, he's changed. Jeff changed him. Jeff did this. Jeff brought, okay. That's when you pick up the phone and say, you know, hey, we like so-and-so. Who do you like? And they say, Daryl Green. Say, I don't know if I could ever give up Daryl. I mean, he's one of my best three-point shooters. He's spacing on the team. Play that little cat-and-mouth game to play up Daryl Green's importance, and then you, you pawn him off on somebody. Let them have buyers or more kind of like the Pacers did after they paid him after what he did in New Jersey. That's a beautiful point, and that is exactly why if I were a GM, I would never trade for a young guy on the Spurs that had been in their system because I would be terrified that we couldn't replicate it. There are certain things that are just dangerous, and that's also when you get into the, the really interesting ones, which are the opposite, when it's the guy that's in such a bad situation that you think that you can fix it, but you realize that you just really don't know. Well, I, like I the waiters. That one's a lot easier to answer. Believe it or not, it's a lot easier to answer that one because – your ability to quote-unquote fix somebody has everything to do with how, what, your, what your ecosystem is like. Perfect example. Channing Fry plays in Portland. Channing Fry is in and out of the rotation. He's, uh, you know, uh, he's derided by Nate McMillan. He's not, you know, he's looking like a draft bust. He's a top 10 pick for, for New York. And it's just not working out. We look at Channing Fry and say, this guy's a hell of a shooter. If we bring him here with our screen and roll with Amari and Steve, this guy's going to give us so much space. And if anyone dares to leave him, he's, we're going to destroy them in three-point range. We're able to say that and take that risk on him in free agency and sign him because, A, we have, we, we have that screen and roll. Steve Nath and Amari Sotomayor, incredible tandem, great success. We have structure. We have a, a coach, uh, or had a coach at the time, Alvin Gentry, who knew the identity of the team, knew how we were going to play, knew what he wanted to do, and we knew it could be successful because it had been successful in the past. So really, Channing was just plug and play because we already know what's going on here. We know it'll be good for us. And then we get him, and then he starts to grow as a player, he becomes a better rebounder and a better defender and all those things. But if we were... Let me use the same example, Phoenix Suns, the year after I left. Awful team. No structure. Front office is a mess. Coaches are embattled with the front office. Rosters every which way. And then you say, let's bring in Michael Beasley because we can save him, we can fix him. You can't even fix yourself. That's like taking someone in off the street who's homeless and your house is about to go into foreclosure. You got to get your house in order before you can start doing reclamation projects, and that's the difference. That's the difference, you know. When you're, and that's why. How do the Spurs? How are they able to take Austin Bay and all these people and then turn them into? Because their house is in order. Same thing when Beasley was playing well for the Heat. Their house is in order. They can take that risk 
and they have a structure so that he walks in, he knows exactly this is how it's done. You like it, do it, you're here. If you don't like it, you're never going to play. We'll see you at the end of the year. Bless the luck to you. You can say those things when you have the structure to do it. And so that's why I always think it's easier to play that game because you already know what you, you're capable of or not. The other one that you don't mention, young player, so let's say Patty Mills, plays great in San Antonio's system. Should I take a risk on him? That is harder because you have to determine is he a product of their system or has he really grown as a player? Is he really a lot better than he was when he was in Portland? The best examples of those guys that I can give from history is might be dating myself. Think about all the role players from those Utah Jazz, Howard Isley, Ryan Russell, Shandon Anderson. These were all guys that were, I mean, they were, Howard Isley was one of the best backup point guards in the league back in the downside. Shannon Anderson was guarding Jordan and switching and, and giving the Bulls problems in the finals. Brian Russell, same thing. Spacer and, and, and the great defender. And then they leave, and, and, and in the cases of Anderson and Isley, they get big deals. And everyone figured out they're trash because they were all product of that system. And trash is maybe a hard word, but they weren't as good as, as they were in Utah. And that is, that, to me, that's always going to be a, a harder one to discern. That's an excellent point. We'll move on a little bit just to, in the limited amount of time that we have remaining to talk a little bit more generally about the NBA. And we've already talked about the Suns, obviously, in depth. But what other off-seasons are you just, as somebody who watches the league, most intrigued by in terms of the opportunities and the, you can say the pitfalls too, I guess? Well, I, you know, we talked about this before we started the show. I, I named like seven teams and then neglected to say, oops, Miami. Of course, Miami has to be top of it. What are they going to do? We're all one. Because that's that, what they choose, what happens with them, will fit off the dominoes for the rest of the league. When I look at those three guys, the guy that's the biggest flight risk is Clifton Spots because there's a very real chance that he'll be asked to take a pay cut and he might just get a better deal elsewhere. Dallas, uh, you know, he's from Texas, obviously, so Dallas is, is, a, is a threat. Phoenix, again, you know, with their kind of catfish, you have to throw them in, et cetera, et cetera. So when you look at Miami, and again, with my free agent rankings that, I, that came out, I know, pretty outdated from after the trade deadline, I've figured out a way at how you can pay Chris Bosh more than anyone else can pay him in the league, but still not pay him max and still save money and still structure it in a way to give you a lot of flexibility. So Miami is interesting. New York is very interesting. How is Phil Jackson going to craft this team? Is the triangle going to dictate the type of players he's going to go out and get? How many of the guys on the roster right now are still going to be there? Because quite frankly, I don't know that anybody has, there are any takers for any of those guys. So they might have to just live with what they have. Will Carmelo stay or go? Phoenix, because we did already talked nearly an hour about why they're special. Chicago, Boozer, does he get amnesty or not? If he does, do they make a move for Love? Do they make a move for Melo? Do they make a move for Rotich? Bring him over from, from Europe. So these are all very, very, I'm fascinated by all these places. Miami, New York, Chicago, Phoenix, Dallas. Definitely is always going to be in that mix. And Houston, a lot of people don't know this, with some careful bookkeeping, they might end up with some with some cap spaces here. They might be able to make some moves and, and go out and get even better. So they're definitely a, a one to watch for me. And to me, if you're talking about the, the locations that could be possibly there for Kevin Love, I think that Houston is the sleeping giant. I think that he, if, 
the the other factor in this, and I'm going to write a column on this, and this is probably going to force me to write the column earlier than I anticipated. I think that we're going to see a very interesting lesson from playing on international teams, which is that Love knows what's important about playing with good players, and Houston will have guys that he has played with for years in Harden and Howard. And so whether they go after him via trade this summer because they have guys that can be involved in that, or whether it be that they try to go after him as a free agent next summer, they might have the juice to do it. And if they come calling, it's not a situation like the Lakers where he's going there on faith that they'll get somebody else, whether it be his old running buddy Westbrook or somebody else. If he goes to Houston, he's the last piece. And when you're the last piece, the sales pitch is a lot easier because you don't have to be sitting there thinking about anybody else. You'd be like, okay, our team is going to be James Harden, Dwight Howard, and you. We're going to be a competitor for championships, and if Miami blows it up, then we might be the favorites for three of the next four years. How does that sound? And that, and the, that, I just think the Lakers' pitch is really challenging with him. No, uh, it, it's definitely, and, and I, I, you know, that's that's kind of what the, the Phoenix Suns will be trying to pitch, and Houston obviously will be in that situation a year from now. The interesting thing for them, obviously, is that they, Chandler Parsons will be a free agent, and then you've got to make the, well, is Chandler Parsons the guy that, is there any way we can keep Parsons and Adlov? And if not, then then maybe Parsons is the guy that goes to get you love in a signing trade, which you'll probably be very amenable to, considering that he's made pennies so far uh, in his career, and, and this would be a great way to make a lot of bank. Or maybe this Parsons goes somewhere else, and you have to make that decision, but I think that's a sound strategy. And one of the things that you also mentioned was if Miami blows it up. I don't even think Miami needs to blow it up for people to start feeling confident about themselves. And if you look at Miami now, the only advantage they have is they play in an Eastern Conference where their path to the finals is a lot easier. But I don't look at Miami anymore as the toast of the league. I think San Antonio is better than them. If they meet San Antonio in the finals, I think San Antonio would win. I think Oklahoma City has a good chance of winning. I think they're comparable. I think. Indiana, before they lost their mind, had a good chance of beating the Heat. I think as Houston gets better and if the Clippers continue to get more disciplined, they they can beat the Heat. So I think we're, we're actually in a, in a part of an era of great parity. I don't know if anyone else recognizes it, but I think, I think we're there as far as competitive balance in the league. And now the pitch is still the same. If you're the last piece, and with you with us, we'll be head and shoulders above everybody else. But everybody's going to probably be saying that. So how do you make yourself more attractive in the meanwhile? That, that's a great point. And the other one that I think is going to be lingering, obviously what Miami does this summer is a huge factor in terms of what people see their franchise as for the next, let's say, three, four years. But the other one that I'm starting to look at now is whether Oklahoma City has an expiration date. And the reason for that is that all of their key players are going to hit unrestricted free agency for the first time. And I've written about it before, and it's not a novel topic. But I think with the current CBA, you learn a lot about a guy the first time he hits unrestricted free agency. And if any one of their key guys leaves, I don't know if they're going to be able to replace him. Yeah, I mean, this is whatever, this is the good thing about the CBA. I don't think people give it enough credit. I mean, teams have to do their best to convince players to stay. And that goes beyond just paying the money as Dwight Howard showed. He left money on the table in L.A. to go to Houston because saying, we can pay you more than anybody else, that's not enough. Not enough. You have to show that you have a vision, a plan, and a, 
a method to execute that plan. New York is going to go to the same thing with Carmelo Anthony. I think that's a good thing. That they might, they may not be able to keep it together, but you know, for why, why are we bemoaning that? I think, I think that's a good thing because that makes sure that all these franchises are are going to keep trying their best to make sure these players are happy and that they have a plan and they're executing. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think that the league has done, in other CBAs, has done too much to subsidize bad ownership in that sense that it was that it should be easy to retain a guy if a guy wants to stay it should not be easy to retain a guy to basically just hold him just because you can just because the ping pong the ping pong balls happened to fall that way eight years before you shouldn't get to keep a guy especially to me in some ways if he went number one where it's not like oh you you were so smart in drafting them they were you know with like let's say with Kyrie you know they drafted him because they got the first pick there wasn't there was no particular knowledge it wasn't like they stole him at 15 or like you know like the Pacers did with Paul George or something like that they just got them but another team I wanted to ask you about I've been thinking about a lot is the Celtics and what I was thinking about is your personnel guy how big of an asset do you see Rajon Rondo being in terms of trade oh you know that's that's tough that's really tough I thought he played well this year um but I also think that the the game is kind of changing, and for someone to want Rajon Rondo, you almost have to either a have a zillion shooters and no point guard. And all we needed was someone to set the table, or again, he'd have to be your final piece. But in, in this case, instead of to convince him to stay, it's kind of a, for him to be good. I wrote about Rondo. Rondo's a really weird, a very special player. I think. I think his abilities shine only when you have people who can take advantage of his talent. And that's what makes him very different from the Steve Nash's, the Chris Paul's, the Steph Curry, the other, the other great point guards, you know, Westbrook's and Roses and all that, but the, the great passing point guards, how about that? Nash, Paul, Parker, and, uh, um, and Curry. So without that, without someone for him to pass the ball to and elevate, He's really not as valuable. His value decreases the more scrubs he has around him. So you're trying to think about, okay, what are the teams that would try and get someone like that? Well, it wouldn't be a team that's rebuilding and sees him as a chance of a star. It wouldn't be like a holiday trade. They're the New Orleans Pelicans. You're not going to go out and get Rondo. Let's see if they haven't gotten holiday. They wouldn't get Rondo because they don't have enough talent for Rondo's talent to shine. So it has to be a team that already has kind of some talent and is missing that guy and wants to take a risk on it. So a great example that I heard earlier in the year uh, before the trade line was Minnesota. Minnesota's thinking to themselves, we got Kevin Martin, we got Kevin Love, Pekovic is a pretty good interior scorer. The guy that's holding us back is Rubio. He's the one that, you know, in the clutch and he can't shoot, but he's scared. You know, Rondo can't shoot, but he isn't scared. He's aggressive. He can keep things going. So if you're Minnesota and you're trying to convince Kevin Love to stay, what about a deal that's centered around Rubio for Rondo? I think that was a pretty good, that would be a pretty good deal to be honest. Because Rubio, I think I have a lot of hopes for him. But if you're the Minnesota Timberwolves, you get Rubio, you're in a position of power because you got this guy who is uh, he's going to be going into an extension. He hasn't had the best last couple of years, so you might be able to take advantage and buy low on him and get some other assets as well. But that's the kind of market I see for Rondo. You're going to have to. Give me a deal like that. That's definitely interesting. Are, I was just thinking about, are there any guys 
I, I would say primarily as free agents, though, if you think of a guy as a trade target, that's fair too, that are really intriguing to you that you think could be undervalued. And so like, it's, let's say you were in a position with a team where you'd be saying, this is somebody you should look at because he might be too cheap or he might be able to, that you could get him pretty easily. And I think he's a lot better than the league thinks he does. Hmm. Good one. Uh, let me, I will say, I will, Tanning Fry is one. If, he may not be cheap though. And not, let, let, let me, let me ponder on this one because you're looking for values, right? Guys that are just not on the radar, but cheap. I'm yeah, like head. like I'll give you one. For mm-hmm. me, I was just I, I just thinking about it. Ekpe Udo is an interesting guy. Yeah, oh. I don't mm-hmm. I don't think there's a market, but I think he's a good basketball player, and I think that there aren't enough teams that are into him that he might get under underpriced, and that would be useful. Absolutely, Udo definitely. I think he's one of the better defensive players that we have, and I think he's always been an undervalued offensive player. I don't think people really. I don't think anyone's taking advantage of his offensive gifts. I thought at Baylor, he was allowed to do so much more the dribble, catch at the elbow, and drive. He can do those things, and no one's ever tried getting him to do that stuff. Let's see who else. I think Luol Deng, I know it's not cheap, but compared to where his value was last year, to after, you know, after this, well, I think I think people kind of have soured on him, but he's got some uh, tremendous value there as far as being a wing a wing defender who can score, who can give you some good offense if you put him in the right system. And this is the part. This is where it gets a little dicey. Depending on who you talk to, I, Charlie V might be a guy. I can't believe I just said that. I was on the way there. He might. He might because he's he's six nine and he can shoot. Very, there should be a place for someone like that. You think in the league. And that's along the lines for me of why I thought that the Knicks made an interesting move with Lamar Odom. It's, you know, it's a guy who has high upside and that you're going to get for really cheap. So the downside risk isn't there anymore. It's not like you're paying them $8 million to wonder what you're going to get. If you pay them a million a year and if you get something that's great and if you get nothing, then whoopee, no big deal. Well, here's the, here, here's the difference, though, when it comes to him. When it comes to Lamar Odom to New York specifically, I don't even think they signed him particularly for his upside or for what he may provide on court. I think he's more of the we need to get the triangle culture going. And that starts at having someone in practice who isn't a coach, who isn't an authority figure, who is one of the guys who can preach the gospel of Phil. And that's what Lamar is perfect for that role. Because he, he obviously understands the nuances of the triangle, having won championships, have been incredibly successful in that. So that system really changed his perception around the league from a guy who underutilized his gifts to being a real talent. But at the same time, there is some cachet there. He's a New York guy. He's, he's a city guy. So easy to sell to the fans as far as, you know, he's, it's almost like a homecoming. For players, he's a well-liked player in the locker room. He's always been a great teammate. So you're achieving a lot of different things there with Lamar Odom. It isn't just necessarily, oh, man, he might he might hit. Uh, let's see who are some other guys. You know, some of the other guys that I think about, by the way, are not necessarily um, free agents, but the, they're going to be free agents. They're, they are the class of 2011. These are guys that like that, the Alex Brookses of the world. Like the, obviously, Kawhi Leonard, you're not going to get for cheap, but someone like, uh, well, here's a name for you, Iman Shumpert. Here's a guy. Now, with Phil there, it's different. It's different because I've heard that Phil likes him, and it makes sense. He fits the triangle. 
he fits the Philadelphia mold of a guard. Six five, versatile, play either position and defend. But if Philadelphia hadn't been there, I think Shumpert's been incredibly undervalued. Uh, he's been kind of it was Mike Woodson's looking boy. The media soured on him in New York. The fans soured on him. But look at this guy. He's an incredible athlete, great defender, and he's not so bad at shooting threes. So he's someone that I looked at as as value. Obviously, we talked about Rubio. Again, relatively speaking, uh, he's obviously not going to come as cheap as an Udo or a Shumpert. But uh, in terms of where he once was valued, what his potential is versus what you could probably get for him now, I'd be very interested in, in Ricky Rubio if, if I'm a team that's looking uh, bargain shopping. Yeah, Rubio is definitely an interesting one. And one other thing I was thinking about, and I've talked about this with your colleague Ethan Sherwood Strauss before, is I'm thinking that if you have a guy who's obviously if they're not a max guy, that's that's a separate conversation because max guys with an individual maximum contract are generally underpaid. I'm thinking that one of the market inefficiencies right now in the league is that if I were a team, let's say Detroit with Greg Monroe, I would have seriously considered trading him before now because the market of what you can get for them as a restricted free agent is somewhat low, and it's very likely that he's going to be properly or overpaid with his next contract. Would well, you consider that, trading guys like that? Well, not necessarily. You know, when I look at a guy like uh, Monroe, I think of what Sacramento did with with Tyreek Evans because what happens is you have the moratorium and during the moratorium you can talk to the player to agents and during the moratorium you can come to terms verbal but nothing's set in stone so the way this, this, the way the savvy front office should work is you figure out who likes the guy you may even figure out that they already have extended the offer but before it turns into an offer sheet you get on the phone and you call them and say look you don't want your cap space tied up for any any longer than you need it to be. We're okay with letting how about let's work out a sign and trade? And that's what you do. You get you figure out who likes Gary Monroe, who offers the contract, and before you can sign an offer sheet, you play nice and you figure out a way to bring him in and get some value for him. So that that's what I would do if I had Greg Monroe. But you're right, at the trade deadline, I don't know if I would have given up anything Gary Monroe. Much like I was shocked that someone would give up something for Evan Turner. I wrote about it right before he got traded. I said, this is why Evan Turner can't get traded. Because all the circumstances that you have to give up something for him, and then you have no guarantee that he'll stay because as a restricted free agent was known historically, they are more likely to get overpaid on deals. So now you either have to overpay to match, or you have to watch him walk after you gave up a first-round pick or in Indiana if you gave up a second-round pick. It's so much angst tied into trading for a restricted free agent that it's not worth it, at least not in a trade deadline. Maybe if you're in the, in the Bledsoe case, that's different. They gave up Jared Dublin and two second round picks. No big deal there. And you had a whole year to evaluate and figure out, we like this guy to be fit what we want to do. So, yeah, it, 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 it's a sliding scale, definitely. Yeah, it's, that's a good template. And it's, it's a really interesting question because, I mean, I think that in a lot of ways, the Tyreek Evans situation was the best-case scenario for a sign-and-trade team of a non-max guy. And Grievous Vasquez is nice. You know, he's not a terrible player. He's on a rookie deal. You get his, you get to do the restricted free agency dance with him, possibly, and he could be a guy to get less money. But 
the challenge is if the best case scenario is getting a guy like Rivas Vasquez for a year, it feels like with certain guys, and the other guy for me with this is Gordon Hayward, that while I'm not saying, hey, you should always trade them, I think that those guys, if I were a team, I would be shopping those guys every single time because but, they're going to get overpaid. Yeah, but, but I think that the problem still remains is that much like shopping Evan Turner, even though I get Gordon Hayward the better player than me, you're still dealing with that there aren't too many buyers out there because who wants to give up assets for a guy that they might end up having to overpay to keep? It's like, oh, I'll just, if I want him that bad, I'll wait till he's a free agent and then we'll figure it out then. That's what you can say, I want to get rid of this guy, but do you want to get rid of him for just about anything? And if that's the case, then you might as well just wait and then try and do the sign and trade that I just described earlier. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's just, yeah, it's just a matter of opinion. I guess the logic that I'm using is that it only takes one team to fall in love with a guy and that if you get if you get somebody on the line earlier, then you can do it. But you're right that in a lot of ways, they aren't mutually exclusive because it's just if you get an offer that's good enough, you take it. And if you don't, then you wait and try to get a grievous. So yeah. that works out. You know, that's that's probably the best way to do it. But it's interesting because I think that maybe some teams got a little bit not brainwashed, but got a little bit intrigued by the way that Josh Smith got kind of underpaid when he was a restricted free agent, thought, oh, see, it worked out. But now we're seeing a lot more of the situations where the guys are getting properly paid or overpaid, and I think there's a market correction that's going to happen soon with that that hasn't happened yet. You know, the funny thing about Josh Smith was I, I always thought that he was appropriately paid. That's the weird thing there. I never felt like, you know, oh, man, they got off on that. I felt like, you know, that that's that's what he was worth, right? You know, it's kind of like when he, he turned into a free agent and everyone said, oh, he's going to be, he's going to get a max deal now. And I was like, well, not really. You know, $12 million is about what he was worth. Maybe a little bit of a bump. You know, so and that's what he got. He ended up getting like about 14 versus the 12. He's, that's what he's worth. It's kind of crazy. You reach a point where when guys get paid what they're worth, like, oh, wow, they got a real discount. That's what the <laughs> discounts are. These are the discounts right here. Other than obviously we've talked about anyone like LeBron on the max deal the discount. The discounts, Joaquin Miller is a discount. Al Horford, that's a discount. Mark Gasol, that's a discount. I'd add Steph Curry to that. Steph Curry is a discount. Yes, yes. Steph Curry is yeah. a discount because the whole thing was because he might get hurt. Obviously, if he gets hurt, then he's not so much of a discount. But, but yeah, so so those guys are few and far. The eight-figure discount, don't steal that idea. I might have to look through that. But looking through the guys that make eight figures a year and are underpaid, that's a real interesting thing to look at. Yeah, I, know, I, think that's, I think that's a good piece. We know the idea Thomas's are underpaid. That's easy. Minimum guys that play really well, of course. We know the LeBron days are, are underpaid. That's easy as well. Worth way more than the max, but the max gives you a discount there. But to find those guys in the middle, kind of. Because Josh Smith to me was never a discount. I thought Josh that, that's what he was worth. The one last team that I'm really interested in is the Atlanta Hawks because they're in a fascinating place in terms of the talent that they have, but they also have resources overseas, and then they also have draft picks that are coming to them. No, absolutely. You know, uh, when you talk about, obviously, the deal that they did with Brooklyn, which I'm still scratching my head over, how could this be? How could they possibly milk that much from Joe Johnson? His contract was terrible. You would think that they would have to give up picks to trade him. That, that's pretty special. And then you talk about Lucas Nogueira, obviously. Um, they drafted and stashed him. And then they've got young guys on there. They've got a nice combination going for them in Atlanta. But they're kind of in the same scenario that we talked about Houston a couple of years ago in Phoenix now. They've got a bunch of stuff. 
now we got to figure out how to turn this stuff into something special. The difference, Al Horford. That's a really special player. I think he's one of the most undervalued, underrated players in the league. And Horford, you know, that's a, that makes it easier to attract, or should be easier to attract talent for them. I was just thinking that it would be really interesting wherever it would happen if Horford would be intrigued with playing with his old college running buddy if there was a team that had enough space for Noah if he ended up being Ooh. dissatisfied with Chicago. He'll never be dissatisfied with Chicago, though. He'll never be dissatisfied with Chicago. I think you've got a, a, a better chance of seeing Horford end up in Chicago alongside Noah than Noah anywhere else. How how amazing of a front line would that be if they could keep Taj, too, and have the three of those guys playing all 48 minutes at both spots? Uh, I don't think that Taj Gibson is going to be a Chicago Bull throughout the life of his contract. I agree with that. I think that's a, I think that's a fair interpretation, especially if they're going to keep Noah, because while they're both wonderful players, that's a lot of money when you, you're definitely going to need a third guy, and somebody's going to give you something for Taj. Yeah, absolutely. The place I want Taj to go for selfish reasons is the Warriors. I think he would be a really fun fit as as a rotation, maybe even the starting power forward with that team. But obviously the, the natural guy with the trade would be David Lee, and I don't think the Bulls have any interest in that. So it would need to be a more complicated deal. But I was thinking about something involving Harrison Barnes and Taj would be really fun. Oh, man. I don't see. I, I completely disagree. I think the Warriors need more than anything is a power forward who shoots threes. I think they need Kevin Love. I think they need Kenny Fry. I think they need that guy, Ryan Anderson. They need that guy because then, then it's game on. Because I think, you know, when you talk about Todd Gibson, now obviously Bogut's not as reliable from a health standpoint, but they already Bogut is that guy. They've got their defensive big. And now what they need is just one guy to spread the hell out of that court. And that's why they do so well when they play small ball lineups with with Draymond Green and, and all these other guys, but but to have a true big who's also a true three point threat and not like some of these other guys, I think that'd be really special for them. Well, that's an excellent point. And the other part about that that people lose sight of with the Warriors is that they don't have reliable three point shooters outside of Clay and Stephen Curry. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they have these other guys that they can plug and play. And so to have a guy at any position, and if that was a power forward, that'd be great. That would be a really big help, and you mentioned Ryan Anderson. That's the guy who I wanted them to go after a couple of years ago, but that would be the other way of doing it. I think you're right that that would be the target, but I think Taj would be an interesting fallback considering Bogut's injury history. But either way, they're gonna. I feel like they have to do something to get themselves to that next level where they're not scrapping for a playoff spot every year. I'm with you 100% there. But again, once again, it's easy to identify the need. It's hard to fill. That's a great point. Well, thank you so much for taking time. It was a pleasure as always to have you on. No problem. Thanks, Dan. Thanks again to Amin Hassan for coming on. You can read him on ESPN and ESPN Insider. And also you can follow him on Twitter at Amin ESPN. That's A-M-I-N-E-S-P-N. Next up is actually the continuation of the interview that I did with Nate Duncan. The playoff part was in last week's, and then we also did about 25 minutes on the Nike Hoop Summit, and that didn't fit in tone with last week's, but it makes sense this week. So we talk about the Nike Hoop Summit. He explains what it is for those of you who are unfamiliar and how it went this year. It's a really fun thing that's in Portland every year, and was really good to talk with him about it, and it sets the table both with some 2014 guys, but also mostly 2015, and then a few really interesting players in the future. 
I hope you enjoy it. It was a lot of fun to record. The other thing that you've done recently, which is interesting, and I'm jealous of you for it, is that you went up to Portland and you covered the Hoop Summit, so that's both the game and the practices surrounding that. Do you want to give people, because you've been up there before, a little bit of background on what the Hoop Summit is? Yeah, so it's part of the high school all-star circuit. It's the best American seniors, as in the opinion of USA Basketball, against the best players they can put together 19 and under who hail from the rest of the world. So this year, some of the players on the U.S. team, Jaleel Okafor, who I think a lot of people know, he's the center out of Chicago, going to Duke next year. Cliff Alexander, power forward, also from Chicago, going to Kansas next year. And then Tyus Jones, point guard, going to Duke. Every year it usually has most of the best American players. And it's usually, it's cool because everybody actually tries They get together for practices. The world team starts on Monday this year. The U.S. moved up their practice schedule, did another two-a-day starting on Wednesday before the Saturday game. And so these dudes play real hard, and and the coaches coach to win, and it's great to see the prospects in that kind of environment. And it's also a good level of competition, especially when the world team is strong and in recent years it has been, to see guys, especially the guy I think of last year was Dennis Schroeder, you know, to see guys who are talented and maybe you've seen some of their footage and they're interesting, but to see them go against guys who they probably don't play against very much, but that are talented guys. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true, especially for the international guys. The U.S. team, even though it's guys who are just graduating from high school, generally present a level of athleticism that is beyond what they usually deal with, especially because the U.S. team often presses and you know usually has bigger wings than you'll see in Europe, bigger and stronger and faster wings than you'll see in Europe. So it's usually a good test for those guys. And we've seen a lot of, a lot of international guys springboard off of a great performance in that game to being drafted. Some of them turned out great. Some of them, like... Uh, Mohamed Sarasene, for example, uh, did not. But it's definitely a thing that all NBA teams send multiple guys to. You know, there's over 100 scouts at the practices. So it's a great event, both uh, just for hobnobbing around and uh, getting an early look at some of these prospects. So in this year's game, and, and probably more importantly in the practices, who stood out to you in a positive or a negative way? Well, the guy who stood out the most to me, is, uh, and I, I apologize if I butcher the name, I think I'm going to get it, though, is uh, Sviatoslav Mihailiuk, who is a 16-year-old from Ukraine. He blew up at the under-16 European Championships last summer, and he really is probably the best young European prospect at this age since Ricky Rubio. He is a 6'6 shooting guard. Probably goes about 190 pounds, but great athlete for a European. He can get up, you know, catches alley-oops, great leaper off of one or two feet. He can shoot the international three quite well off the dribble or off the catch. Really an excellent passer as well, and he's got great hands on defense and really solid quickness. He's really, other than strength, has everything that you would want to see in a prospect of that age. And he really, he's going to turn 17 in June. So he's really the age of someone who, you know, would be a high school junior right now. And he's the most exciting guy and, you know, kind of an unknown. So he caught my eye the most. and That's who I was most excited to see. I don't know if he's the best prospect there, but probably the most exciting one. 
And the really encouraging thing about what he showed over that weekend is that strength, and even amazingly enough, he's probably going to get taller too, is that that's one of the most easily correctable things. And there are guys in Europe, every once in a while you see them come through who, and you can tell me better on, on, on him, that might be better in the American game than in the European game. And from the limited amount that I've seen, I think he's, he would be really fun in the NBA once he grows into his body and everything else. Yeah, you know, I think he he has a lot of, uh, and, and I was talking to uh, my Italian friend about this. He saw Manu Ginobili play a lot when he was playing in Italy before he came to the NBA. He has a lot of similar aspects, both the quick hands defensively, sort of the, the skinny but but athletic build. You know, he's, he doesn't quite have that creativity with his footwork that Manu has, but, you know, he's 16, obviously, too. And so that was sort of the, the comparison that I thought of immediately. I mean, now, you know, there's no guarantees to become that level of player, but it, he's really an exciting guy, just a, a joy to watch in the practices. I was a little disappointed that he kind of got buried in the game uh, only played 13 minutes. He took this one terrible three from the corner, and then the coach was like, well, that's, that's probably about it for him. And also, the coaches, the Roy Rana is the coach of the under-19 Canadian team, or the Canadian junior team, and the guy who played over him, Jamal Murray, is one of his stalwarts on there. So somewhat understandable that, that he didn't play as much. The other international guy that I was very intrigued by even though he's going to play at a U.S. college, is Emmanuel Moutier. And I'm a, I'm a guy who loves big point guards. And what did you think of him in everything at the Hoop Summit? Well, he made the statement early in the week. I, I was very impressed with him at the McDonald's game, just the separation that he was able to create off the dribble. He wasn't really that aggressive in the practices. He actually had stated that his goal was to get his teammates going, and then you know he would be a little more aggressive during the game and that's that's what he ended up doing. So I mean he he wasn't someone who stood out that much in the practices that I watched. I only saw the last two days unfortunately. But I think I think he's gonna be real good. He's not he's got athleticism. He's not quite like nuclear athlete John Wall, Derek Rose level, but he's a big point guard with a lot of quickness. His jumper is improving, but it's his form's not broken. I think he can get it there. And he's probably you know a better shooter than someone like Wall or Rose was at that point in their career. And then he's going to SMU, and a lot of people have lauded Larry Brown's ability to work with point guards. And there's a hope that he's going to really improve once he gets down there with his decision-making, which is a little bit raw at this point in time. From what you've seen so far, do you think that he'll be able to defend ones and twos at the next level? Or do you think he'll be end up being more one position than the other defensively? Uh, no, I mean, I think he probably has the size to, to defend twos. I think a lot of it, too, is mentality. You know, Kirk Heinrich is 6'3". He defends twos all the time because that's just what his mentality is It's in his toughness. It's possible. He has size. If he gets a little stronger, it's not out of the realm of possibility. The other guy that I'm intrigued on, just because I've never seen him in person, at least not yet, hopefully I will soon, is how did Gio Okafor look in terms of, obviously he's too young to do it now, but in terms of whether he'll be able to play center in the pros eventually. Oh, no, he's absolutely going to be a center. He's 6'11", 7'5", wingspan, I think 9'2", 9'3", standing reach. So that's absolutely center size. 
offensively as far as post-ups, I mean, he could probably post up against some NBA players right now. So, yeah, I mean, he's he's definitely a center. Um, he does show relatively quick feet that belie his size. He weighs 272, and he's actually slimmed down a little bit to get to that. You know, he, he got switched off on a Moutier a couple of times during the game. Uh, the U.S. did a fair amount of switching, especially late in the clock. And he actually acquitted himself really well. So, yeah, I think he, he is absolutely a center. I mean, and he believes that he's a center, and he loves to post up, and that's that's what he does. And, and he, you know, is, is very clear that he is a center. I know that you and I are both big on the value of having a center, especially if they're defensively capable. Do you think that, from what you've seen so far, that he's the best prospect in the 2015 class that you've seen so far? That's that's a tough call. I was thinking about this. You know, a, a lot of it, he's a bit of a throwback in terms of his ability to post up. But, you know, like a lot of kind of beefier post players, he's not someone who protects the rim all that well. Now, given the way he moves his feet, and if he can get into a little better cardio shape, which, you know, is the case for most high school big men, you could see him... And he, he has a high basketball IQ, and he's someone who at least says the right things about wanting to get better on defense. You could see him maybe developing into a Mark Gasol type of space-eating presence, although he's not quite as tall as, as Gasol is. But for right now, I think you know it's a little more likely that he goes the DeMarcus Cousins path in terms of his defensive impact. That's definitely an interesting kind of – and I think that Cousins – I mean, we don't know exactly with the numbers and everything with him, but it does seem like he's getting at least a little bit better and that if, if Okafor could follow that track of even starting out shaky and eventually being there, as long as his offense translates, that's a fascinating player when you think about where the league is historically, where teams have been successful and everything like that. No, I, I agree. So so some of the other candidates of who the best guy in that class would be, Moutier would certainly be up there. And someone who really intrigued me a lot is Carl Towns. He's been around really for the last two years. He actually played last year for the world team. Uh, he's from New Jersey, but he plays for the Dominican Republic team. He's a true seven-footer. He's got an enormous standing reach. I think it's 9'5", and he can drain NBA three-pointers all day. He's making 55 60% of those just shooting around in, in the practices, and with the way the league is going and, you know, the incredible advantage that shooting seems to bring when you are a big man, a guy with true center height who can block some shots pretty well, getting into better shape, you know, getting stronger and improving his interior play, we can hold up on defense and shoot threes at his size. He could well end up being a better player than Okafor. I think that's not something that anyone would have said last year, but he's improved quite a bit. Unfortunately, he got into foul trouble in the game and, and wasn't really able to show his outside shooting ability because uh, that wasn't really part of their offense. But I think he has a chance to be the best player in this class. Towns is definitely interesting. I, I'm fascinated by his skill set. And what I keep thinking about with him is the prayer that I have with, with all guys like that, and it's a criticism in some ways of the draft system, is he needs to go to the right team. Because I think with the right team and with the right things around him, he'll be such an interesting guy. He'll be a matchup nightmare. And we talked about earlier about the idea of Mehmet Okur and how think, how that worked. And Towns could be kind of an evolutionary guy in terms of being a, 
stretch four or five that allows a creative and smart coach offensively and defensively to do things that the league just doesn't see very often. No, I, I agree. And I think his coaches deserve credit for allowing him to develop that aspect of his game. I mean, if you're a high school coach, your team is not best served by having Carl Towns shoot NBA threes. But I think, you know, coaches, whoever his coaches were, did a nice job of not being selfish and, and letting him develop the skills that, that were best for him and not trying to pigeonhole him into, oh, be tougher, get down in the post, you know. And it's it's interesting to think about that as opposed to Isaiah Austin, who many people, including myself, have killed for spending too much time on the perimeter. But I think the difference with Towns is he's doing it and he's producing and he's still young enough that he can grow the rest of his game. Yeah, and, and he's Towns had some nice shot blocks on, on Okafor. He's not someone who is so thin now that he's just going to get back down like crazy. He's not someone who is a natural, you know, just like, absolute man-eater in the post you know he's not like a super tough guy but he's getting better at it and and he's working on it and I think you know he can get to where he'll be a passable rebounder and defender at the NBA level and in terms of his college career the fact that Willie Cauley-Stein came back makes Kentucky have this shockingly great front line that could work insanely well on offense and defense and maybe end up actually elevating both their stocks if this team makes a run, let's say, at least to the Final Four, and maybe even further. Yeah, you know, that team might actually have some interesting, and, and Trey Lyles is going there, too. I mean, it's, it's going to be, their front court is going to be ridiculous if Jakari Johnson stays also. But, you know, it might be a good thing for Towns. Uh, he could play a little bit of four with some of those other guys with his shooting ability. And then, you know, they can, they would have some amazing shot blocking, but you know, then again, I, I don't follow college basketball. Maybe I should just stay in my lane. <laughs> well, is there, are there any other big takeaways you had from the hoop summit that you like to share? I think one of the big things for me, well, well one of them was Stanley Johnson, who's a California native. I've never seen somebody who compares more closely to an NBA player than he does to run our test. I mean, he, Stanley Johnson is 6'7", 237, great defensive wing, you know, obviously really strong, pretty athletic guy for his weight. He really is just almost like an Artest clone. And the other thing I thought about, too, is just what the American advantage in international basketball really is, and it's our wings. The U.S. team had, had four guys, Stanley Johnson, Justice Winslow, who's going to Duke, Theo Pinson, who's going to North Carolina, and then Kelly Oubre, a, a lefty 6'7 with a 7'2 wingspan who can jump out of the gym and, and is developing into a pretty good shooter. He's going to Kansas. Those guys, the international team, even though they featured more guys who went to U.S. high schools, no answer for skilled guys like that who can put it on the ground, shoot a little bit, and most importantly, hit the glass and defend. I know that it's your alma mater, but have you given any thought to how Stanley's going to play with Rondé Hollis Jefferson? Oh gosh, yeah, that that's going to, and then Tarzuski is going to, and that front line, if it's the three of those guys, is going to be almost as difficult to score against as as they were this year, perhaps even more so. And the nice thing that I like about this group is that the guys that I've seen haven't seemed as much as specialists. They just seem like they're growing into all-around games, and it's going to be interesting to see 
how they develop as pros and if they can keep the intensity. Because I, I like the way that Stanley Johnson plays. I like watching Okafor and all those guys. And you don't see them float as much, which I really like. Yeah, these guys are really high character guys. And that was clear from the first practice that I went to. They're all really vocal. They've known each other for a long time. They really encourage each other. They executed the scheme. They played hard on defense. You know, they held the the world team uh, who lit up last year's U.S. team. They held them to like 0.82 points per possession in the game and pretty much just locked them down. So I, I mean, I really got the impression that these guys are all great young men, and you know, hopefully they'll uh, remain in the USA pipeline for years to come. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. It was good to get your insight. All right, great to be on today. Thanks. Thanks again to Nate Duncan for coming on. You can follow him on Twitter at NateDuncanNBA. He writes for BasketballInsiders.com. And thanks again to Amin Hassan of ESPN for coming on and not only hitting the Suns, but doing general topics. So the Eliminated will continue over the next couple weeks. Uh, I'll get into playoff discussions as well. The challenge with doing a weekly podcast is that you want it to be timely, but also still be relevant and through later time because you never know when people are going to listen to it. So we'll definitely have some playoffs, but we'll also want to keep the Eliminated series going because that can be more of an evergreen topic and people can hit it at various points. And as I've said before, looking for people for trying to do as many teams as we can. I know we're not going to get to everybody, but I want to do as many as I can. So if you have people in mind for the series, just hit me up on email. It's Daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L, dot LaRue at RealGM.com. Or you can send me a tweet on Twitter, and that's D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. I appreciate all input, positive, negative, whatever. It makes the show better. If you're taking the time to listen, I always appreciate responses, and I will take it into account. So thank you for listening. Take care, and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love a sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. 